Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. To live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. William Branham is a retired Navy SEAL with 26 years in service. He was deployed 10 times, and as a former U.S. Navy SEAL, he is the founder of Naked Warrior NW Recovery. Now, at an early age, William knew that he wanted to be part of a team that would push him well beyond whatever self-perceived limits that he had, and joining the Navy SEALs did just that. Upon graduating from SEAL training, Bud's Class 208, he was stationed in Virginia Beach, then in San Diego, and finally in Hawaii, where he served multiple SEAL teams, taught SEAL sniper school, and deployed around the globe. His last years in service were in HQ, where he built teams to solve operational deficiencies by creating partnerships with industries, academia, and strategic funding organizations. He also has a master's in strategic leadership, making him the very definition of a warrior scholar. William, thank you so much for being here today. I know that you're incredibly busy. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Listening to all that, I'm like, who is that guy? He sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I want to hear what he has to say. This guy sounds awesome. Yeah, I like, I'm ready to listen. <laughs> No, I think that's amazing. When people hear the term Navy SEAL, I mean, that is the most elite warrior that's out there, probably in the history of martial warfare. Would you agree? I would agree. Yeah. And so when people hear what you were learning and what you went through whenever you were in, say, BUDS, they all want to know, what's the mindset? How can I get to that place? What can I do? So when you're in the water torture, when you're on the surf and you're in that cold water and you want to give up, the first question when I ask my podcasting listeners what is something you want to hear? They were saying, how do you get beyond that place? What is going through your mind? What is your internal dialogue look like whenever you want to give up, whenever you want to quit and you just keep moving forward? So I think I'm going to avoid the question a little bit, but I'm going to come right back to it. So just to give you a little background. So 26 years in the teams, I grew up in Meridian, Mississippi, not a lot going on there. I always knew kind of like in the intro that I wanted to be part of some sort of elite commando something unit. I don't think I knew what the word elite was back then, Mississippi. We didn't have a lot of technology back then. You know, I had four channels on my TV, you know, I had like the two knobs to turn and my role models growing up, I guess, that were kind of pushing me in that direction or kind of leading me down that road was John Wayne in the movie Green Beret. He was a Green Beret in Vietnam. Chuck Norris, the movie Delta Force comes to mind. And then John Rambo, of course, he was an army ranger. So all of these are army centric, but they're all special forces and they're all something special out there. And I always knew I wanted to do something like that. I was heavily involved in the Boy Scouts. Someone told me I was going to a national jamboree and one of the sister troops, Boy Scout troops, he was like, well, I want to be, I'm going to go become a Navy SEAL and an F-14 fighter pilot for like the movie Top Gun. And I was like, that's cool. What's a Navy SEAL? And he was like, it's like, you know, they jump out of airplanes, they blow stuff up, they sneak around, they scuba dive, they do all these things. They're like the elite of the elite. It's the hardest military training in the world. I'm like, I, that's what I want to do. And I didn't play sports as I was growing up, mostly because my grades weren't very good. 
so my dad wouldn't let me, but I wasn't like a great athlete either. I was okay ish. Okay. At running. Okay. At swimming. I was not talented. I think that's what I'm trying to say. I wasn't talented. I still to this day don't have like really good hand-eye coordination, but I can get stuff done. And, you know, that's kind of a misconception. People just think like Navy SEALs, they're great at everything. We're actually not. And, you know, I've done this swim across the Hudson River. It's a fundraising event for the last two years. And people are like, oh, you're because you're a good swimmer. I'm like, no, I actually hate swimming. I do it because it's for a good cause and because it's hard. Because if you're not trying to improve yourself in some way, and some of that, even just like prepping for the swim, training for the swim, that's hard work. I don't want to go swim out in the ocean. There's scary things out there, things with big teeth that want to eat you. So, you know, I have to like overcome my fear and it's like super choppy right where I live. I do live in Hawaii. So that's the water is clean ish. So that's not a bad thing. I joined the military. I did all that stuff, 26 years. And through that time, I picked up some baggage. Some of it was from work. Some of it was from some toxic relationships. And so what I was doing is I was drinking myself to sleep at night, pretty much every night to kind of turn off this noise in my head. And through that time, I discovered this molecule called CBD, and I wasn't ready to get into that. But CBD, and what CBD did is it kind of like helped me turn down the volume of that noise in my head. And then once I was able to turn that down, I could kind of like control what my thoughts were, what I was actually thinking about. I could kind of control that a little more. And from there, CBD was like this one modality, but the other side of it was I had to figure out like, what mindset do I want to have? You know, I have this career of elite performance. I was in a fantastic organization. And when I retired from the SEAL teams, I lost my mission. I lost my purpose. I lost my team. I lost everything that I knew. Like I've spent my entire adult life pretty much in the SEAL teams. And then I went from that to nothing overnight. And so that was very depressing and very hard for me to kind of overcome. And what I eventually did is I sat down and I thought about like, what are all my lessons learned? How did I do really great things once upon a time where I'm not doing great right now for myself? And so I came up with this get naked mindset. And what it is, is it really embodies most of the lessons learned of 26 years of service. And so really naked is a mindset. And I say get naked because we're talking about taking action. And so to answer your question, this is a long answer to come back around to your question is so naked is an acronym. And the first letter in naked is in is for never quit. And I don't mean never quit drinking or smoking or anything like that. It means if you've made a conscious decision to do something, you have a goal, you have a purpose, whether you're starting a company, getting a degree, being in a relationship, going to SEAL training, joining them, whatever it is, if you've made a conscious effort to do that thing, then you follow it all the way to the end, whatever the end looks like. And the end is different for everyone, depending on what your mission, what your purpose is. And so one of the analogies that I use is actually, so during hell week, you are, and I'm getting a little ahead and I'll, I'll bring it all the way back to laying in the surf zone, but during hell week, it's five and a half days of just like cold, miserable misery and that you don't sleep, you're wet and you're cold the whole time and Sandy, and it, it pretty much it's, it is what it is, but it is a necessary piece of it going up to hell week you lose about 75% of the class. And then during hell week, you lose 75% of whatever's left. And so that last bit is like sort of the core and the guys that make it through hell week, what they do, it doesn't matter how terrible hell week is. We use the same mindset. Like an example of how to get through hell week is one thing is constant, no matter what they feed you four times a day. It doesn't matter how terrible you are, how terrible this thing that you're doing, how cold you are laying in the ocean. All you have to do is make it to that next meal. So what I call that, I call those small victories. 
So as you're sort of going along through whatever the challenge is in your life, whether you're in SEAL training, laying in the ocean, locked arms with your buddies, and you're just jackhammering uncontrollably, you know that this evolution is going to end. They can only keep you there for so long. So when I was laying there in the ocean, jackhammering uncontrollably, trying to like bring my calmness back down, or like when they had us facing the beach, but laying backwards. So the silty sand would like go up your nose and like into your, and I'm like dry heaving there on the beach. It was super fun. All I could think about is like in probably an hour, I'm going to be in a hot shower. And right after that, I'm going to be in my bed, nice and warm and cozy. And so this doesn't matter. Like this is just part of the process. And so that mindset of just like making it through one evolution at a time, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't think about like, oh my God, this thing is so unattainable. Just think about what you're doing right now. Focus on that one thing, finish it. You just got a small victory and getting those wins, getting those small victories is really good for your mental state. And it just helps you just one win at a time, one step at a time, one inch at a time, one more pound, whatever it is, just do one more. And it doesn't matter the metric of it. Just do one more, one more minute, one more second, one more, whatever. And that's kind of that never quit part of the get naked mindset. That was, like I said, a long answer to come back around to your question. No, I love it because you've encompassed so many things with that. And it's so true. Even when people talk about meditation or being present or mindfulness or even a flow state, it all comes back to don't worry about the stuff outside of your control. Focus on what we can control and the stuff that's outside of our control is going to happen irrespective of that. But you can control what you're choosing to do. We can control how we want to feel after this iteration. So do we want to feel proud? Do we want to feel motivated? Do we want to build momentum? Or do we want to feel ashamed that we lost some of that metal that we could have had had we chosen to be resolute within that the face of that adversity. So I love that. The other thing that I see with people is a lot of people are looking for these shortcuts around the hardship, around the cold, around the wet, around being chafed in the process of getting through this. And by doing so, they literally stump their growth because in all this time that they could have just drawn through this thing, like Robert Frost says, the best way out is through they could have actually already been to the other side of it had they not sit here and just allow themselves to be stuck and say, well, I'm going to do this later, or I'm going to wait for this adversity to pass, and now I'm going to push through it. It's like, no, actually, if you would just push through this right now and understand that it is going to be difficult, but it will not be the end of the world. And frankly, on the other side of that obstacle, we are much stronger, we are much wiser, and we're much likelier to succeed in the next adversary that we face. Yeah, 100%. And you know, as you're talking, everything for me comes back to naked. The accept failure is with the A. The A is for accept failure. I wouldn't take $100 million to not have the failures that I've had in my life because the lessons that I've learned through those failures have made me the man that I am today. Good or bad, however it is, I wouldn't change who I am or how I got here because I had to go through that adversity. And so kind of, again, going back to SEAL training, I was always surprised that, and I kind of talked about it in the beginning, like I'm not talented really at all. I have to work really, really hard for what I have. I didn't play sports in high school. I kind of wanted to, but my grades weren't good enough. My dad would not let me. But there were these guys in SEAL training, and they were amazing athletes, incredibly talented, fast runner, fast swimmer. They could fly around the oak course. They were loud. Everything seemed so easy for them. And that's because they had this incredible talent. They were physically fit. They showed up much better prepared than I did. But then I would see them quit. And I was like, what happened? How did they, what the thing is in steel training, you're going to fail. You're going to face failure every single day, multiple times a day. 
you're either not fast enough, you're not strong enough, you didn't work as a team, you weren't loud, and it doesn't matter what it is, you're going to fail. And they couldn't stand the thought of not being good enough, being told that they weren't fast enough, they weren't strong. They're used to winning, always winning. And even though they may have to get punished by their coaches for something that they did, those in whatever sport they played in college or high school or whatever it was, they still came out on top. And in SEAL training, no one comes out on top. Everyone comes out on the bottom. And then they break you down and they build you back up. But you have to go through that breakdown period that just like crush your soul physically, mentally, emotionally, break you down, see if you really have the grit. It's because it's not about discipline equals freedom. These guys were incredibly disciplined. They didn't have the grit to accept the failure that comes with doing great things. And so I've talked to some of them years later, and some of them are much worse off, and some of them are way better off. They said, you know what? I wish I hadn't have quit. So now I have this burning desire to be awesome in this other thing that I have in my life. So they learned those lessons. They just didn't become Navy SEALs. Yeah, and that's a great point. When I was in infantry school, it was the same thing. I didn't join the military until I was 38. So I'm in infantry school with brown hats that are drill sergeants yelling at me that are half my age, competing against guys that are 19 or 20, right? But it was the same thing. I wanted that adversity in my life. I wanted something to challenge me. And it was the same thing. You're going to have to kill me or I'm going to have to get broken before you I quit this thing. But that's what I found. Like you said, you had these young guys. They're all alphas in their area and everything is easy for them physically, but they have never had true adversity. They never had to sleep up. They never had to learn something from the Ranger Handbook. They never had to go on patrol. They never had to be under pressure. And because they've never truly been tested, they give up at the first sign of it, or they're the ones that get everybody else recycled or pushed back, which again, is something that they can't even wrap their mind around it. Meanwhile, me going through the school of hard knocks for 38 years, yeah, I was like, yeah, this is just kind of par for the course. This is just what it is. That's what it, that's why I'm here. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Put me back in the ocean. I don't care. Let's go. <laughs> it's like, we're going to get wet again anyway, right? We're not driving. Okay. I mean, it sucks, but yeah, that's why we're here because it sucks because it's hard because if we weren't doing it, who else is going to do it? That's exactly it. And again, even then I would see some of these guys that would get through that part. And then when they would be under stress, you have them throw a grenade for the first time, or you have them shoot a 50 cal for the first time. Again, this is something different. It's a different kind of stress or pressure and they don't know what to do around it. And if they freeze at that point, it's important to find that out now, as opposed to when you're jumping out of an airplane or when you're trying to hit a target, because if they do that now, that mistake kills people and it gets everybody else caught behind that line. We can't have the luxury of hesitating through the fatal funnel if we're trying to move forward. Right. This thing that I realized pretty quickly when I got to the SEAL teams is that, you know, people are like, how do you make it through SEAL training? La la la. SEAL training is actually really easy compared to like real world stuff. Because kind of what I talked about in the beginning, you have these like timelines. They can only keep you in the ocean for this amount of time. You can only do these things for this amount of time. Everything is timed. It's all built. But when you leave SEAL training and you go into even like some of the training events and real world combat events that I was a part of, it was way harder outside of SEAL training than it was inside of SEAL training. Because you knew you had those safety barriers. No one's going to let you die or whatever, hype out. Like I've been in some on some dives in the real world that were, I'm like, when is this ever going to end? So you just have to go to a different place in your mind because everything is going sideways. You cannot communicate. You're underwater. Everything is blacked out. You're at 15 or 20 feet underwater, but the ocean is so choppy. You're still getting that surge. So you're like, you're like a little bit of like danger. 
there because you're compressed air and like if you happen to be holding your breath as you come up it's that's really bad super cold or in combat we're going out for like a few hours and then like we're still out three weeks later not okay yeah i would have packed more ammo and some mmres if i knew right exactly <laughs> we get you know we got resupplied but still that was like oh this is unexpected i'm not going back to my bed tonight to be you know in my little sleeping bag and that's that adaptability like you're talking about everybody can be strong and especially on social media, we see so much false bravado. Everybody talks about being courageous, but it's very easy to be courageous when there's no true threat. It's very easy to act humble when you haven't really tried to push yourself. So being in those places where you are, where you've talked about, especially in the SEALs, adversity doesn't give you the luxury of quitting if you are truly committed to what you're trying to do. So you have to be very honest. And sometimes what we see, like you said, especially in those times when you haven't got all this sleep, when you're tired, when you're scared to death, you're not going to be at your peak, but you have to give whatever you can in that moment. And that's the most important thing. And that seems like, especially if they give you like the impossible missions, even when we were training, it's like, it's not possible to get to this point, but they wanted to see what is this guy made of when he sees it's not possible. Is he just going to quit now? Because sometimes that last push is all they want to see what you do, right? You might make it. That's it. And it's a lot of times it's so easy to get stuck in that. And even now, especially if you're like a young person who's starting a business or a young entrepreneur, a lot of times they're trying to find all these answers, but that self-knowledge, that grit, that knowing who you are, that know thyself truly comes from adversity, from doing hard shit, from pushing yourself. Right. You have to do that. You have to put yourself in those hard things. Like I talked about before, like I do these swims. I do not enjoy swimming. Oh, you're a seal. You are a good swimmer. No, I'm not. Most seals are actually not good swimmers and most of them don't like swimming. There are some really, really good swimmers in the SEAL teams. I'm not one of them, but I do these hard things because that's what helps build resilience. That's what helps build the grit because it's very easy in today's society to just be mediocre and just be okay with whatever you have in front of you because we have technology and technology, I think, makes us weak. We have so much opulence now. We take so much for granted and I think it really makes us mediocre. And actually, that's what the K stands for. The K is to kill mediocrity in your life, in everything around you. And as you say, it's one thing to be inoculated from fear and from distress and from adversity for a little bit. But as human beings, our natural tendency is to go through a hardship and then put as much distance between us and that hardship as we can. Like if we, a little child that burns their finger on the stove, they get away from it, they don't ever want to go back to it. But as you said, if we have the courage to either re-engage in that discomfort or some form of discomfort every day, that keeps us from embracing that mediocrity that keeps us. And here's the other thing. I've had people, I'll, if I'm speaking and they'll say, you know, Marcus, I haven't been paralyzed. I haven't died on the table like you have, but I feel like I'm not really being pushed hard enough. And they're facing the worst adversity, which they aren't even aware of, which is mediocrity. They're swimming in it. They're just drinking it. Right. Once you get in it, it's hard to get out of it too. And what I talk about, I talk to people about just like, how do you kill mediocrity is you compete. You compete against yourself. You compete against your ego because your ego knows all your strengths and all your weaknesses. It knows exactly what to tell you to make you mediocre, to make you quit on yourself. And so I say compete in kindness, compete in generosity, compete in just being a good person. I'm from Mississippi. And when you're driving down the road, you just wave to everybody that you pass. Nowhere else do we do that. So I do that just naturally. And or I wave at people or I say hi or just smile, just smile to someone because your natural tendency is to not because like I don't want to engage in someone. Just smile and say hi. You're going to change their life. 
And you're also going to kill a little bit of that mediocrity in your own life. And as you compete against that ego in your own life, you will change your life and you'll change the life of the people around you. I absolutely agree. Like you said, that our ego knows all those things. I call them rational lies because we rationalize things, but it's this thing that is rational. It's like, oh, well, I don't need to talk to that person because I have to look at my phone or I have to get this phone call or I have to look at this over here. It doesn't take much to wage somebody to look them in the eye, to acknowledge them, or even buy somebody's gas at the gas station or their coffee in front of you. It's something very small that for us is just a moment. It's a decision, the decision to be courageous. But for them, that can have lasting impact. The ROI on that, the the long echoing sentiments of that action echo forever. Right, 100%. And that's where that power comes from. We were talking earlier about Eric Antonson. So you surf, do you foil as well? Or is it kind of everything? I do not foil yet. Where I live now on the island, there's not great surf here. Where I used to live, I could be on the North Shore in the winter in about 15 or 20 minutes. So it was awesome. But where I live now, it's not great surf here. I think they're pretty good foiling waves. I just haven't committed to learning that skill. I've gone once. It was super fun. It was scary too. But I love Eric. Eric, he is the essence of mastery. If he finds something that he wants to do, he will do everything to master that. He will find people. He will find coaches. He will find like he will experiment and he will master whatever it is. And I love that about him because like I have a question about it. I'm going to ask Eric. Yeah, he's methodical. He has that intentional practice. He gets that feedback immediately. And I can only imagine, I live in Oklahoma, so I'm landlocked, but I'm hoping I can get down there at some point and say, listen, give me a 10 minute, 15 minute session sometime, show me what's going on. I mean, just to be a part of that. And then he's also very big on this idea of this flow state, this idea of flow triggers and trying to come to this place of the zone, so to speak. Can you talk about an experience in your life where you've had that? And is that something that you're able to get into kind of like a flow state or like the zone whenever you're doing any sort of activity? Yeah. If I'm doing anything that's repetitive. So I have a tire that I drag. I hate running, but it's a necessary evil. It's one of those that's killing mediocrity in my life. It's making me better. Even though I'm very beat up from my time in the teams, my legs tell me about it. But anytime I'm doing that kind of repetitive event, I come out of it with clearer thoughts. I'm able to pull the important stuff out of my brain and kind of solve those problems that I maybe didn't even like, they were kind of buried and I wasn't really thinking about them. You know, I'm listening to whatever gangster rap while I'm on my run in my breathing. And I go into that state of once I get through the suck factor, even though it hurts and it sucks, I still like, I think some of it is taking your mind away from the pain and it's applying it to those things that are important that you need to solve, that your, your brain already knows it needs to solve. And this is just an, an activity that helps solve it. So, you know, I'm fortunate to live where I live because behind my house over here, there's a, a nice, I call it a mountain. It's not really a mountain. I can get to the top of it in like 15 minutes and there's trails along the top and around and whatever. So I can get up there and, but doing those hard activities, those kind of repetitive breathing exercises, I'm not so much a sit still and, and meditate kind of guy. But I get into those states when I'm doing things like that, or sometimes when I'm surfing and it's like pretty big and maybe I above my skill level, but I get into this like super focus because I'm like the consequence are high right now. And when I'm in those really high consequence areas, uh, moments, I focus and I like lock in and I'm able to like do things that I, if I'm being lackadaisical or complacent, I will fail and I may die. So let's not do that. Let's focus and be 100% engaged in what you're doing. 
Yeah, I love that. And I think that you brought up some really powerful points. So people talk about saying like mantras when they're meditating. But to me, I have the same experience that you have of this idea of physicality where that repetition and the physicality, this skill set, whether it be swinging a blade, running, dragging a tire, whatever, once you have that level of, I wouldn't say mastery, but at least you have a certain amount of technical prowess, now that repetition becomes almost like your physical mantra. And that allows you to now, and now that that comes off, now you can, like you said, you cultivate this empty space mentally. Now you come to this place where, okay, now I can detach from this. And then as you were saying too, I think people forget about this, but if we can channel this properly, we can actually use pain as that flow trigger. Like you said, you had that stake. You understand, listen, if I fall off of this wave, you know, I come out of it or I maybe get floating to the shore in a heap. So the idea is we have to have that elevation. So there has to be a certain amount of skill set. If I were trying to surf what you're talking about, you'd be pulling me out even before the curl came up. I learned that from experience. I remember my first big wave. It was at Lania Kea's here. It didn't seem that big. And I wasn't really engaged. And I still, my skill set was pretty low. But the wave was coming. I was on a stand-up paddleboard. It was like a little bump. I could have recovered, but I was not really engaged. And like, I thought it was safer than where I was. I was a little bit complacent. And I fell and I'm like, no big deal. The wave is going to pass me and it's going to break over here. Well, it was big enough that it broke out where I was. And all of a sudden, I find myself getting sucked up the wave, up the face of the wave. I'm like, oh, this is bad. Up the wall. And then (laughs) I find myself in free fall. And all I can think is I'm like, where is my board? I do not want to land on my board. And I landed. And then you have, you know, water is eight pounds a gallon. I don't know how many gallons was on top of me, but it did not want to let me up. And it was just a super churn. I'm like, oh, this is what they talk about. I'm not happy right now. I'm very unhappy. And I can't breathe. And I didn't get a good breath. And eventually, I got myself to the surface. And the next wave broke right on my head. And I got one breath and like, I didn't put my head underwater in time and it hit me so hard. I was seeing stars underwater. I'm like, oh my God, don't pass out. This is really bad. It was because I was complacent. I wasn't fully engaged in what I was doing. That's why I almost died. I mean, it took everything I had. There were like my extremities. So I've done some free diving courses and, you know, we've gone into like this, whatever Zen state of like in the pool with just your face in the water and held our breath for four minutes totally possible. What's harder than that is actually doing the two minute exhalation breath hold. So if you go and then hold your breath on the exhale for two minutes, that was harder than the four minute breath hold. So like, I'm trying to stay calm, but my extremities are completely tingling, numb, tingling. I'm like, this is really bad. I need to get some oxygen in the body very, very quickly. Eventually I got got hung onto my board as best as I could. The next wave smashes me but I hung on long enough to like get carried out. And I just laid on my board. I was like, what am I doing out here? Maybe I need to reevaluate what I'm doing. But yeah, that whole kind of event, I'm like, maybe I'm not coming home today. This is maybe this is it. Who knows? But I got out of it and I went back and I surfed and I, yeah, I still do stuff like that. But I learned that lesson, like complacency. I've learned it many other times, but complacency kills. And you just have to be whatever you're doing, especially if there's even a smallest level of danger driving your car to work. You could hit someone if you're like on your phone scrolling, you're not engaged in driving, defensive or otherwise, and someone runs a red light and smashes right into you. And then, yeah. So you have to just kill that complacency in your life. Yeah. It's so easy to underestimate this opponent, this activity in front of us. And like you said, the times that we do that, that's when we sort of drop our hands and that's when we get knocked out because they say the punch that knocks you out is one that you don't see coming because again, you don't have that mental follow through just like with the trigger break. 
you're not trying to slap this thing. You're trying to be at one and let it go its natural course and then ride it. And so there's so many times for us in life where, again, if we're being distracted by the phone or whatever's going on over here, it's literally impossible for us to be able to be present enough. And then by the time we do react to it, we're already willfully behind. In combat, if we feel like we're a step behind, we're not, we're usually two or three. And that's what forces us to really have to, like you said, hopefully we have the capacity to leapfrog ahead of it. But if we don't, then that may be our last mistake. That's so powerful. What we talked about, somebody that you're friends with and that you serve with, Mike Day. Mike Day's story, for those of you that don't know, he has a book called Perfectly Wounded. You have to read it. I can tell you the short story of it now, but that will not even capture what was going on. But this is a man who was wounded, shot multiple times like 15, 16? More, yeah, I think in the 20s, actually. It was in the 20s, yeah. yeah, so... I mean, I could be wrong. It's a big number. It's a large number. It's not shot once, grazed by a 9 millimeter. It's right. shot at close range with an AK multiple times. Three different guns. He was shot with an AK, a, an M4, and I think a 9 mil, maybe. I thought there were three rifles, but maybe I'm, I'm wrong. But yeah, just shot a tremendous amount of times. And that AK round, that 7.62 round, it's like a three oh eight round going through your body at close proximity. So you can only imagine the devastation of that. And then for him to be able to find the will to continue to fight through that. And again, that's Mike's story. And hopefully I can talk to him sometime about that. But you talked about the powerful lessons that you were able to extract when it came to leadership from being around there. So can you tell us kind of where you were in that place and then how these things came for you and what you were able to learn from that? I was on my way into Iraq. I wasn't there yet. We were coming in to take their place and they were doing a kind of a turnover. Uh, so ideally, before a platoon or a task unit leaves country, the group that's coming in to replace them, they go out, do kind of a turnover. So you're like, hey, this is how we go out the gate and things that we need to do. And hey, we've got to op on the books. Let's go do this. So our guys are going back. Your guys are coming in. So we'll kind of like put all that together. And they go into the house. It's you know a mixed force of Iraqis and, and SEALs. And somehow Mike and another kid, Schwedler, come in. And they're like number one and number two. And so they do their thing. And then the Iraqis don't follow like they're supposed to. Mike gets shot up. Schwedler gets shot in the back of the head. He dies. And the Iraqis leave the house. But then there was like no communication. Everyone was like pulling off. There was a guy that was shot outside the house from that firefight inside, shot in the arm. So they were pulling off. And I think they were going to drop bombs on the house because it was like, they're like, why do we need to go in there and fight? There were also women and children in the house. And so, but they didn't have a good head count. Eventually Mike did his thing. And then he came up on the radio and he was like, Hey, where are you guys? I just took care of some business and Schwedler's dead and some other stuff. And I might got to get it up, give it all away. But there was, because they had been there for six months, they had done a bunch of ops. They got a little complacent in their leadership and like some of the other stuff. And I'm not saying anything really bad about them, but it's, it's a natural thing that happens to all of us. I talk about life transitions. And when you transition from one thing to another, that's usually when bad things happen. And, you know, I've been on ops where we like, we go in, everything's good, not a lot of resistance. We get our thing. We have our guy, we're going back home and then we get ambushed as we're getting back in the vehicles. And that's like the most chaotic point is like, are these transition points? And if you don't practice those transition points, I talk about life transitions and I kind of do it in a little bit of a military planning process. and. And what I say is always focus on 
the rehearsal, the dirt dive, the rock drills, like make a plan and then practice the plan. No one ever wants to practice a plan. We don't even want to practice the plan, but we do it anyway, because those transition points, like we could be driving away and we left someone on target because we didn't have a good head count before we, oh, we're getting like shot up and extreme chaos is happening. And yeah, like we got a bunch of people. We got extra people now. That's bad. You leave someone on target. That's really, <laughs> that's really bad because you got to go back and get them. So those transition points in life, and it doesn't matter if you're like getting married, having a baby, buying a house, death in the family, a new job, getting fired from a job. These are all transitions. And if we're not prepared for life transitions, I know Eric had like a gigantic one. Like, I don't know that you could be prepared for that. I would call that more of a life ambush. And my friend, Jason Redman, who has been shot many times as well. He talks about getting off the X and, and these life ambushes that we all go through. And so talking more about just like a, more of a planned transition, but you know, sometimes you just can't plan for it. Maybe planning for the company that you work for shutting down is you have three or six months of savings to the side. That's kind of a plan. But if you don't have a plan for what you're doing in life, you don't have a guiding light to get you where you need to go. So everything that we do in life, we should have some kind of a plan and we should rehearse that plan and it can just be talking about it. When we do dives, this is really where a lot of it came for me. For Combat Swimmer, you plan a dive and then you have like your bearing, your depth, your time, and your kick count. And how long you kick determines how far you've gone. And so we don't write down the coordinates that we're going to take because if something happens, you have multiple people going, swim pairs going into a target. If something happens, and one swim pair gets pulled up and the enemy is like looking at your intel that you have on your body, they can figure out very quickly where the rest of the team is going. So we have to remember everything. And then what you do is you go out with your attack board, which is just a compass, a depth gauge, and a watch. And that is the way you navigate underwater. And you go on, follow the bearing of your compass and say, okay, that was 20 minutes. Okay, go on 270 for 14 minutes. And you walk a little ways. So you get to the ship or you get to the thing, you get to the place like kind of mentally, you walk through the whole thing and we just call it a dirt dive. And then we do it all the way back to wherever we're going to get extracted from. And we do it just like walking out on the sidewalk and maybe we're doing a blind swimmer at a ship. The compass doesn't work. So you turn the compass upside down. So you're not looking at it and you just swim straight for a couple of 30, 45 seconds. And then you turn it over. Hopefully you're on your bearing and you go the rest of the way and then you turn and get out of dodge. But that is all about practicing the plan practicing what you're going to execute. And, you know, again, when we go back and we think about technology, I got a GPS, no one knows how to read a map anymore, much yep. less like pace count out in the, in the wilderness with a backpack on your back, like ranger beads and all that good stuff. Like no yeah. one knows GPS, my who's Randy McNally. No one knows, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> I drove across the U S multiple times, Randy McNally right there on my passenger seat. Like, okay, what's the next exit? Got it. Where am I going? So that's how I planned. And so, but we don't plan like that anymore. We don't plan for anything in our regular life anymore. And we just sort of go with the flow and we, we have to be deliberate in what we do. We have to plan the dive and dive the plan. And like you said, it's intellectual laziness to do anything outside of that. And again, in those spaces where we allow ourselves to get off track and not be resolute, that's where it's easy for us to get artificially pacified and distracted by technology in a way that's not going to serve us. So I love that idea of being very specific about what you're wanting to do. And here's the thing, just like what you were talking about with you guys have a plan, but sometimes the path, it feels like you're lost on it. Like you said, if your compass is not working, but even if that's the case, you still have an idea of where to go because 
when you stop, you are dead in the water, literally. You, there's no way for you to really get anywhere. But we still had a plan. Like when you're under the ship, it spins. So you just put your back against the ship and then you kick off and you swim straight. You're going to, if you go straight, you know, 90 degrees from the ship that you know, the direction of the ship, you're in complete, absolute darkness under there. But you swim, you just close your eyes and you swim and then count to 30 and then flip your thing over. And if you're not quite going the right direction, you're out of that magnetic zone and then you course correct and go. But again, that's you know part of the plan. That's it. And feeling lost on your plan sometimes is part of the plan as well. Like you said, being able to adapt. Again, it's very easy to follow all the steps. That was part one of my interview with William Branham, retired Navy SEAL, leadership expert, and warrior scholar. You can hear part two of our interview on the next episode of Octonom Verba, where William returns to continue his discussion on the Naked Mindset Method and how it can help you face and overcome adversity. We also discussed the Navy SEAL 70-30 rule and how it applies to fear, how to kill mediocrity, and a simple strategy for addressing anxiety. Until next time, live a life of actions and not words. Live a life of Okta Nonverba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.